0: Let's go straight into the word this morning. If you have your Bible, go with me to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11 is where we're going to be at today. And uh, such an honor and a privilege to gather every time we get together and go into God's word. Um, when, when you're at our church, uh, pretty much everything we do comes from the Bible. Someone say amen there. Like, like we, we spend our lives trying to figure it out. We spend our small groups discussing it. Um, if you're intimidated by the Bible or you haven't read it in a while, no pressure, because I believe church is where we discover things together. Someone say together. And so, uh, whether you were raised in church or you just kind of raised by yourself, I believe today God's gonna speak something new to you and it's gonna bless you, all right? Uh, Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 1, when you're ready, say I'm ready. Mark chapter 11, right after Mark chapter 10, here reads the word of the Lord. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples. And he said to them, go into the village in front of you. And immediately as you enter, you will find a donkey tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it to me. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say that the Lord has need of it. And we'll immediately send it back here. The story continues. And uh, it says, and they'll send it back here immediately. Verse four. And it says, and they went away and they found the donkey tied at a door outside the street and they untied it. And someone came to them and said, what are you doing untying the colt? And they said, we're doing what Jesus told us to do. Anytime you do something God tells you to do, you're always going to have someone in your life saying, what are you doing? Okay. There's always people that question progress. So just before we even get into the talk today, just know that that there's a continual resistance against God's people because we don't think we're there yet. We don't think we've got it all figured out. The church is the only entity that celebrates the brokenness of its members. We are the only entity that says, if you don't have it figured out, come, we want you. We don't say, get ready, then come. We don't say, figure it out before you get here. We don't say, you know, excuse yourself. We say, if you're broken and you're willing, come on in. It says, no one has ever sat on this donkey. Let's jump down to verse seven. And they brought the colt to Jesus and they threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road and others grabbed leafy branches that they had cut off from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I want to title this message this morning on Palm Sunday, This Seat is Reserved. This Seat is Reserved. That's the title of my message. Very quickly from the thought, This Seat is Reserved. Would you pray with me? Lord, help us today as we open up your word. I pray this wouldn't just be acute speech or motivational talk. I pray this would be the very words of life, not just Sunday morning words. Make these Tuesday night at midnight words. Make these Thursday morning when our kid woke up sick kind of word. <laughs> Make these when we're watching the news, even just looking at tragedies like this week. God, give us that kind of word, how to respond and be people of life, even in the midst of death. We love you. We bless you. We, help, we need your help today in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. amen. Turn to somebody next to you say, this seat is reserved. This seat reserved. is reserved. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, one of the privileges and greatest things that uh, my wife and I got to do was move from California to Western New York. We started this church about a year and a half ago. And most people would say, like, man, why would you leave California? You know, why would you leave, like, the comfort? Why would you leave, like, the weather? You know, if you're looking for a way to connect with locals in Western New York, just talk about weather. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And, and, and one of the things that I, I always tell people is we did it because God told us to. I wish that I could say it worked out in our plans. I wish I could say that it was the best financial option or it was the best for our career, But we simply did it because God told us to do it. And when we moved, we realized that we would be flying out of Buffalo quite a bit. That if we were to, you know, move on the east coast of the country and we still needed to go to different places, we knew that every now and then we'd have to jump onto a plane and go somewhere. And so I don't know about you, but I don't like flying. Amen. You're following me. I don't like to fly. I just, I like to get to where I'm going, but I don't like to get into a cylinder, plant myself in a seat and overthink who else is in the plane with me. I don't like to get so caught up in who I'm traveling with that I forget about where I'm going. And so recently, I was flying from Buffalo down to Lafayette, Louisiana, and I got into my seat. I was in seat 8A. 8 is one of the closer rows, so that means I was going to get off the seat, you know, off the plane soon enough, and I felt good about my seat, and, you know, I'm like, like when I board a plane, it's like I'm going to war, okay, I got my headphones in and I'm just looking who's who. Okay, who do I need to get past? Who's going to be a problem on the plane? You know what I mean? Um, I have a kid, so I try not to get too worried when I see kids. Uh, But you best believe there's times where I look at kids and I'm like, oh, Jesus. Jesus. Oh, Jesus. And so recently I got on the plane. I sat in 8A, got my little aisle seat. I'm sorry, my little window seat, was looking out the window, was already checking the angles for my Instagram picture. I was like, this is perfect. This is good. I put my Bible in the front there because, you know, I'm a pastor. I can't wait for someone to ask about that. And I'm just kind of like sitting there and I'm just doing this. And then suddenly this lady gets on and she comes up to me and she says, excuse me, are you 8A? a And I said, yes, I am 8A. And she pulls out her ticket and she says, well, my ticket says 8A too. And I had a moment where I had to call on the name of Jesus. And I said, oh, that's weird. And and she said, I don't don't understand. And what had happened was uh, I got my seat assignment late, I guess. And so she had had the first seat assignment. And she came up to me and says, that's my seat. There was a moment where I was like, this is my seat. What are you talking about? This, this, This is where I belong. And she says, no, 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 this is my seat. So eventually she goes and gets the flight attendant. And because I'm the man of God, I move to the back, all right? The first shall be last, and the last shall be first, somebody. But it was just a moment of this unnecessary confrontation, just tension. I didn't bring it. She didn't bring it. But what was happening is someone was frustrated that their seat was taken by someone else. Somebody got onto the plane and they had a seat that was reserved for them, but they were confused that someone else was sitting in that seat. I don't know if we understand how frustrating it is for something to be reserved for you and then it gets taken up by somebody else. When my wife and I first got together, we got a two-bedroom apartment because I was not ready to live with a woman. And I thought, if we're going to have one bathroom, that's not a good thing. So we had two bedrooms and two bathrooms, all right? And in this little apartment, I was so excited to have an extra bedroom. I started putting stuff in there, had a little lounge in there. You know, some friends came over. They were like, hey, can we leave this here? And I'm like, sure, I got an extra room. You know, and eventually I put all this stuff in this extra room. And one day I had a friend call me and say, hey, I'd like to come into town and stay with you. And I had had a room that was reserved, but now it was filled with all my own stuff. There was no space for my friend to come because it was reserved with all my other stuff. Maybe God is not coming into your life like you would like because there's all this other stuff that the seat of your heart that was originally reserved for him has been taken now by other people's opinions or our political structure or our religious trauma. And Jesus shows up every day saying, is there room for me? And we say, no, this is where I keep my church hurt. No, this is where I keep my political opinions. No, this is where I keep my finances. And the seat that is reserved for him gets filled up with all this other stuff. We're living in a day and age where most people won't even recognize that's a problem. Like in America, you can be a Christian without being a disciple. In America, it seems like you can be a follower of Jesus without fearing God. And what's happened is we have allowed two people to squeeze into a seat that Jesus says is only reserved for him. I'm preaching already. Let me give you some framework for where this is coming from. The Bible makes it very clear. The Bible says God is good. Someone say amen. Amen. The Bible says God is good, but it also says that we as humanity are bad. Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 8, it all gives this emphasis that without God, we can't do anything on our own. Okay, I talk to people that say, do I really need to believe in Jesus? I feel like I'm a good person. Aren't good people going to go to heaven? And I just want to tell you now, if you think good people are going to heaven, you will be mistaken when you get to heaven. It's not good people that go. It's believers in Jesus, the good shepherd, that go. So the Bible says God is good. We are bad. And it says we need God's help to be formed into his image. We need his help to show us how to live. We need his help to show us how to think. We need his help. That's the foundational understanding of Christianity is I need help. It's not a place to be right. Christianity is not a place to prove your point. Christianity is not a place to prop yourself up in your own morality. It is a place to say I need help to be formed in God's image. And friends, that's why at our church, we always go back to the scripture because it seems to give us the guidelines to who Jesus is, as well as who we're supposed to be. So the Bible's not about following rules. It's about becoming like someone. I wanna walk like him and talk like him. And when I go places, I wanna think like he would think. You know, the disciples were telling him, don't go through Samaria. That's where all those Samaritans are. And he's like, why wouldn't we go to people that aren't like us? I want to think like him. I want to welcome people into our church and be accepting of people. You don't have to, you know, approve of everything they do to accept them into your life. Jesus had a heart of acceptance without ever just approving of sin. So the Bible says God is good. We're bad. And we need God's help to be formed in our image. Here's the problem, though. The culture says something opposite. The culture says we are good. And God is some things with God are bad. And so we need to help God be formed into our image. This is the current state of our, of our Christianity, I think, in this country. Uh, without making too many blanket statements, it seems like uh, Christian orthodoxy is becoming more about going to church and loving everybody than it is about sacrificing something for someone. Yeah. And, and, and giving your life to become like someone and, and dying to yourself so that one day we could have life that never ends. But we got to first get that framework. The good news is that Jesus is perfect. The difficult news is that we're not. And we need his help to get our eyes on Jesus. The story is about Jesus. The focus is about Jesus. The goal is Jesus. Revival happens when it's about Jesus. Uh, uh, lives get changed when it's about Jesus, okay? Uh, people come to Jesus when we keep it about Jesus. It's not about us. It's not about my victory and what I got to push through and, and God help me get through my stuff. I'm going to preach it. It's about him helping us through our stuff. Well, what about that one scripture, Billy, that says, you know, we are more than conquerors. Finish the verse. We are more than conquerors through him. I'm going to preach it. It's not about us. The quicker we can get to the end of ourselves, the quicker we can see the new life he has for us. The quicker I can push away from my preferences, the quicker I can live in his promises. I'm preaching, y'all. There's something about getting to the end of you. Isn't that what worship is for? T- tell, tell me if you've ever been in a, uh, a moment of worship where, where you're lifting your hands because you love worship and you're praising God, and then all of a sudden you just start thinking about yourself, I'm so awesome. I'm glad I'm not like my relatives, they're not Christians. I'm here worshiping. No, friends, it is not worship unless it is off of you and onto Him. It is not true worship unless you have nothing to do with it. <sighs> worship is not about our contribution to God. It's about our surrender and laying ourselves down. I know it's intense, y'all, but someone's got to say it. Laying ourselves down for that which is greater than us. But culture tells us you should be trying to change God into your image instead of you being conformed into his likeness. The story of Mark 11, you've heard it before. It is the beginning of Holy Week. And sometimes this week can easily become like a holiday thing or like a tradition thing. But within the story of Jesus coming into Jerusalem, there are these little nuggets and these little uh, leadership principles and these little revelations about what it actually means to be a Christian. I think every book in the Bible, every chapter, every verse is a neon sign pointing to Jesus. I believe even the stuff in Leviticus points to Jesus. The sacrificial system, they gave seven different offerings in the book of Leviticus, seven ways to put a sacrifice on the altar. When you start reading Leviticus and you read about the altar and the sacrifice, and you re- read about like where there's a sacrifice fire would come and they would light it on fire, you start recognizing this is what Jesus did for us. He was our sacrifice. And when I keep coming back to that altar and remind myself that he is our Passover lamb, he is the sacrificial system being completed. He is the fulfillment of my works and all the stuff I tried to do. The Bible says your works are like filthy rags without Jesus. So even the stuff in the Old Testament points to, to who he is. You know, at our church, we say you are loved and that comes from John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Well, let me show you another verse about the world. First John chapter two says this, do not love the world or anything in the world. This bothered me this week. I was talking to the Lord and I said, wait a second. John three sixteen says you love the world. So you gave your son. But then later on, John, the same guy that wrote John, first John, he says, don't love the world. And I asked the Lord, I looked up the words, the words are the same. The the words in John 3 are the same love as it is in 1 John 2. And I had a moment where I'm like, wait a second, how come you can love the world, God, but you don't want me to love anything in the world? And I felt like the Lord said, because I'm God. I have the ability to love something without becoming like it. I have the ability to give myself for something without laying myself to come like it. See, sometimes we read the Bible like we're the main character. (laughs) I'm always David killing Goliath. That's always me. I'm always him, my giant. I'm never the guy on the side of the road crying like we can't defeat Goliath. Are you following me? I'm always Joseph. I'm always the one that everyone else threw in the pit. I'm in the pit because my brothers did it. I'm never the brothers that are actually throwing people in the pit. I want to love the world like you did. No, the instruction is don't love the world or anything like it. This word love means to entertain or to be fond of. Don't entertain the things in the world, like having a big house that you can, you know, just live in is the goal of your life. Don't entertain that idea that says, you know, keep yourself from people that aren't like you, you know what I mean, like, no. Do not love the world or anything in it. Look at this, if anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of the life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. I'm just reading the book. <laughs> this isn't me. I'm preaching the book. Verse 17, the world and its desires pass away. But whoever does the will of the Father, the will of God lives forever. Oh, don't you want to live forever? There's something about that story. Like if you think the Bible is like a book or it's a bunch of rules, it's actually a story. It's a story about 66 different books that kind of seem to point to the same character. 40 different authors, you know, wrote it on four different continents over the course of 1500 years. Why do I believe the Bible? Because all these writers seem to be saying the same thing. Like they're so far apart in their time period, but yet they were writing about the same need for a savior and the same wretchedness of man on his own. So I believe the Bible, because there's something about the story I want to be true. You know, recently I was on a pastor's retreat uh, with a bunch of pastors. I got a call. I was like, hey, I want to fly you out, and meet these pastors. So it was three days to just kind of hang out and get to know guys. And one day I walked into the library, and uh, I saw a copy of Lord of the Rings. Never read Tolkien before. Never saw the movies. Okay, I know some of y'all are looking at me like I'm crazy, but never read it. Never heard about it. Just was kind of like, ah, that's weird. I just picked it up one day, started reading it. Like four hours went by <laughs> And I was like, you know, 200 pages in and I'm like reading this like fictional fairy tale story about this guy that is holding on to something precious and he's on his way to find something and he's got people with him. And and, and in the story, you start getting this idea that like good is going to triumph over evil. And like like these characters in the story, like they have a desire to live forever and have love that knows no end. And when I think about it, like most of our stories have that thing in it, like Good can triumph over evil. That's the goal of the story. You know, love that has no end. Like every fictional fairy tale, something in us wants it to be true. That's why we read them. That's why we go to the movies. That's why a good story always, you know, helps us escape from our own story. And I started realizing as I was reading Lord of the Rings, thank God, the story I believe is true. Thank God that the God I serve, one day, good will triumph over evil. Uh, one day, we will have love that knows no end. Uh, one day, we will live forever. So maybe we can wrap our heads around the gospel story in the same way. There's something in this that we want to be true. Okay, you got to imagine when Jesus is with his disciples at this point in, the, in his story, Mark chapter 11, we're towards the tail end of Mark and uh, he's the shortest gospel writer. It takes him 16 chapters to get through the story. You know, Matthew is like 28 chapters. He's very detailed. You know, Luke has like 24 chapters. He's got a lot going on. John has 21 chapters. You know, he's like, let's really stretch this out and get some nuance in it. Mark is like, let's get to the cross as quick as we can. Let's get to the story about what he did for us as quick as we can. And then Mark chapter 11, we pick up an interesting request of our Lord. He's, he's on the Mount of Olives and he looks at his disciples and he says, uh, you too. Uh, I want you guys to go down into that city, and when you get there, you're going to see a donkey tied up. I want you to grab that donkey, and I want you to bring him back to me. Okay? Have you ever felt like you were on a donkey mission? That Jesus was asking you to do something that just sounded so weird. Let's put ourselves in the story for a second. There's 12 disciples. If I'm one of those two, I would first look at the other 10 and say, "Well, what are they doing? Don't worry about what they're doing, Billy. I want you to go get this donkey." are you sure you don't want me to like raise anyone from the dead or like heal somebody or like go preach a message, Jesus? And he says, no, go get the donkey. <laughs> There's times in life, friends that f- this, that God has you on a mission that makes no sense. You can imagine these two walking down into town. I can't believe he's sending us to go get a donkey. Isn't he the Messiah? Isn't he supposed to come riding on a horse? Isn't he supposed to come with an army? You see our misperceptions about Jesus will cause our engagement with him to go down. Like when we think he's something he's not, we'll care less. If we think he's a judge and he's just looking at you like, you know, you smoked another cigarette this week, huh? We will come into his presence and be like, let me get in here and get out of here. But if we see him as somebody that has the words of life, every word he says, then I hold on to. Everything he thinks, then I want to know. He tells these two, go into the town. I want you to see a donkey and I want you to bring him back. As a church, we've been thinking about that idea. What does it mean to listen to his voice, even when it sounds crazy? And most of the times, we want him to do something for us, but we don't really want to do anything for him. The Bible talks about uh, when we're in this condition and we want to go one way, but he wants us to go another way. The Bible talks about our need to repent. Okay, have you heard this word repent before? Based on how you were raised in church, this word might mean different things, okay? Some people think that repent means feel guilty and do nothing. Some people think repent means you're a failure. Some people think repent is like aggressive and it's like, you're only telling me that because you're mad at me or something like that. And I just want to show you what repentance actually is, okay? The the biblical definition is repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of action. So to repent is to be doing one thing with my life and then all of a sudden I change my mind about how I'm living. But you can't just change your mind and have knowledge of it. You have to change your mind and change your direction. Repentance is not just feeling bad and then going back to the same habits. Repentance is just not, I feel guilty, maybe God will save me again this week. Repentance is I've been burdened so much by my own sin that I wanna change and I wanna go in a different direction. Okay, he is too good to keep our stories the same. He is too good for us to come into who he is and then just say, well, I like that, but not that. I'm just gonna stay the same. No, when we come to him, friends, and we change our life, we are showing him that he's Lord of our life. Can I go deeper? Yeah, the the Bible makes it clear that Jesus is our savior. Someone say amen to that. That's a good, good part to say amen, okay? He's our savior, but he's also our Lord, okay? Well, what about salvation? I thought, you know, that I just need to believe and I'll be saved. No, no, you can believe in him as savior, but it's not salvation unless there's repentance attached to it. These are not two separate things. They're two aspects of the same thing. When we get saved, okay, we believe him. He's our savior. And then we repent from our own life. He's our Lord. The problem is we have a lot of people that want to be savior, but don't want to listen to what he says. Or we have a lot of people that want to be Lord and think they're too strong now and they don't need a savior anymore. And they want to keep their performance as the focus. Can we be a church that recognizes he's both and, savior and Lord? He rescued me, but then he gave me direction. He saved me and healed me, but then he set my feet on something new. He took me from where I was, and he didn't just put me in a good place. He brought me to a journey now that I keep going. On Palm Sunday, may we be reminded that repentance isn't because we're bad. It's because he's good. The driving force of our repentance is not that we are bad. We are bad. We've established that. We, there's something in us that's bad. But I don't repent because I'm bad. I repent because he's good. Do, do you see the difference? Romans chapter two says it like this. Okay, Romans is uh, one of the most important New Testament books. Paul is trying to show us that Jewish people, they need to accept Gentile people into this. But he's also trying to show Gentile people that the Jewish people can't ride on their identity anymore. It, it's a very profound book. And if we could spend two years going through it you know, every week because it is so special. But let me just show you what he says in chapter 2, verse 3. He says, Do you suppose, O oh man, that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, do you think you're going to escape the judgment of God? So, so, so in chapter 1, he goes on some stuff about like sexual ethics. And then in chapter 2, he kind of goes, Hey, but like Jewish people you think you're gonna judge those Gentiles for sexual immorality without knowing that you do the same thing? Because you think you're gonna escape the judgment of God? Look what verse four says. Or do you presume that on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, like do you think just because he's good, you, don't, you get out of it? And here it is, here's the line. Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So what drives me to repent? God's kindness. That's what leads me. Not the judgment of God. You know, if I were to get up here every Sunday and at the end of my message say, um, you know, if you, if you don't know where you're going when you die and you were to walk outside right now and get hit by a car, if you don't know that you're saved, do you want to come to Jesus? Everyone's going to get saved. You know what I mean? Like, yes, of course. If I die right now, yes, I want to make sure. No, friends, we need to draw people to repentance because he's kind. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter how far you've come in your life. We serve a God that welcomes you in. Are you struggling with your financial stewardship? God welcomes you in. Are you struggling with lust or negative thinking? God welcomes you in. Are you going through a divorce? God welcomes you in. Have you lost a loved one? God welcomes you in. What you've been through is not enough to keep him from you. That's a tweet. What you've been through is not enough to keep him from you. He is pursuing us. For the Bible says we love because he first loved us. So the kindness draws me to repentance, not guilt, not performance, not wrath, kindness. Okay, we're supposed to be fishers of men. We're supposed to catch people, if you will, with the gospel. You know what our net is? Kindness. You know, you know how we get people to come to Jesus? The kindness of God. Not judging people. Not looking funny at people. You know a word that we don't ever use? Our greeter team knows this. And if they don't, they're learning now. A word that we never use is, where you been? When someone walks into our church and maybe they haven't been here in a week or a month or two months, we don't say, where you been? We say, it's so good to see you. Because kindness doesn't evaluate past performance before it first welcomes somebody. So we got to get back to being kind and loving people with the goodness of God. Okay, there's three ways to w- look at repentance. The first is legalism. And again, many of you were raised in a church that was like this. Just stop sinning. This is what you were taught. Don't wear that. Don't smoke that. Don't sleep with this person. Just stop. And, and it was almost uh, put on you as if there was like a performance thing attached to it. Like, okay, I got to keep myself clean now. And I would just like to say that if grace saved you, grace will sustain you. If grace saved you, works will not save you. There's gotta be works. There's gotta be things we do once we're saved, but don't think that those works are what's gonna get you through. So if you were raised maybe in a holiness church, you were raised in a certain type of setting, they would put a lot of emphasis on repentance, but almost like, you need to stop. Don't have sex before marriage. Why not? Just because. Okay? Don't do that. Why? Because the Bible says so. And and, and I love the Bible. But if we give the Bible with no explanation, no context, we fall right into legalism. So there's legalism. The second way that repentance is dealt with is what's known as liberalism. And liberalism is just don't talk about repentance. Like just preach love and just don't worry about that stuff. Like we don't need to repent, right? God saved us. Why are you beating us up with repentance all the time? Like, can't we just get on to something else? liberalism kind of excuses itself from repentance and says, but that's for everyone else but me. Wow. Okay, this is not a political term too. Some of y'all are like, liberals? No, this is a word that's been used long before our political <laughs> structure, all right? Liberalism is that idea of I determine the way I want to follow Jesus. And I think there's a third way how we respond to repentance, not legalism, not liberalism, but just the gospel. And the story of Jesus is, is because of what he's done, I have a deep change that I want And now, when I look at the seat of my heart that was reserved for Him, once I come to know Him, I actually don't want anything else in there blocking Him. I I, I don't want anything in there, you know, causing confusion within me. The Bible says God is not the author of confusion, that nothing about God is meant to confuse you. Nothing about how He created you should confuse you. Nothing about what His words say should confuse you. He is not one of confusion, He wants to bring clarity. And he wants to show us the best ways to flourish in life. So the gospel shows us that we can change. And after you get to know Jesus, you actually want to change. God saves us and changes us. And not just us, he changes our desires. Can I encourage someone today, if you're still struggling with desires and still struggling with wanting to go back to the old things, a part of your discipleship to Jesus is allowing him to change those desires. Book of Psalms, particular chapter 34, it says, And God will give you the desires of your heart. Amen. Doesn't mean He'll give you what you want, He'll give you what to want. He doesn't give you the things you're desiring, He gives you new desires. And God will give you the desires, He'll give you that thing that aches for righteousness. You know, I don't like to read my Bible, Pastor Billy. He talked to him about it. He'll give you that passion. I promise you, friends, he hasn't revealed himself to me. Have you asked him? Sometimes we're telling everybody else that God's not showing up, but we're not actually going into our prayer closet and saying, God, would you show up? Repentance is not to beat us up. It's to make us into a life that's more whole. Jesus actually talked about this. Matthew chapter five, he says this, be, fer- be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. You ever heard this verse? Well, God's not into perfection. He's into progression, right? I don't have to be perfect. I just got to keep moving. Well, according to this, he wants us to be perfect. And the the Greek word teleos means complete, mature, and whole. Jesus desires that our lives would be complete and mature and whole. He desires that when we come to him, we would find a sense of knowing he is the one that's gonna make us whole. Okay, watch this. Repentance isn't about perfection. It's about a desire to be perfected. It's not about me saying, I'm perfect now, I've repented. It's about me realizing I want him to perfect me. I want him to make me whole. I want him to mature me. Okay, and Jesus does not get done perfecting you until you breathe your last breath. You will be perfect one day in the full sense of that word. You will stand before him perfectly one day. But I like to tell you, it's not in this life. And that is our joy of following Jesus is we long for that day when no more tears come down our faces. We long for that day when sin does not exist anymore. We long for that day, Revelation says, we don't even need sun in heaven because the light of the lamb will illuminate all that we are. Can we hope that we hang on during these tough times in our world? Because one day we will be perfect. One day we will stand before him and we will recognize that we're whole and complete. Mark chapter 11 shows us so much about how to get whole and how to get complete. And if you're here today, I I, I wanna go Jerry Maguire on you and say, it's not a girl or a guy that's gonna complete you. It's only him. It's only him that will give you the fullness of your life. And so I want to look at this donkey, or as one of our old pastors from California used to call him a donkey. I love you, Pastor Mike, if you're watching donkeys everywhere. I want to take four principles from the story of Mark 11 and see how we can tie it into our lives. Okay, I want to learn about this colt. Okay, I, I want to talk about this donkey. I want to talk about this foal, if you will. I'll give you four things that I recognize right away that might help us. Number one, the colt was in a certain place. When, when Jesus gave instructions to his disciples to go get this donkey, he, the, he was in a certain place. The donkey was already there. How God knew that that's where the donkey exactly was, I don't know. You know he just knows these things. Um, I've been in situations like this. Back when we were doing youth ministry, we would do these outreach nights where we would go to downtown Palm Springs. We'd take like 30 kids and uh, we would pray together. And we would ask the Holy Spirit to reveal things to us about certain individuals that we might see. Okay, have you ever heard of this before? It'd be about like 30 young people, just crazy about Jesus. We'd pray in the parking lot and then these kids would start like seeing stuff. And so like one time I remember I was praying and it was like this woman in like a red sweatshirt with a cane. And it was a hoodie, but it was a cane. And, and I'm just like, okay, that's what I feel like you're showing. Wouldn't you believe it? As we're walking down the strip, here comes this lady, red hoodie, wearing a cane, rocking a cane. And I, and I walked up to her and I just said, hey, how are you? And, and she says, good. What can I do for you? And I, you know, and I noticed she was wearing like a little scarf like around her head. So I just went for it. I was like, are you going through chemo treatment right now? Jaw dropped. She goes, yeah. I said, I'm a cancer survivor. And I'd been praying about maybe someone I could share my story with. Can I pray with you? Can I tell you what God's done in my life? I told her about my testimony, prayed with her. As we're praying, she starts praying for me. She like hijacked the prayer. She's like, Lord, and I just thank you for this obedient man of God right now. You know, and she just starts going in. And I'm like, how did that happen? It wasn't because I knew the lady with the red sweater was there. It was just like a willingness to say, all right, God, if that's what you're saying, you know where the people are. You know where someone is in their life. I don't. I'm just supposed to be obedient to your voice. Mark chapter 11, as they approached Jerusalem and they came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples and he said, go to the village ahead of you and as you enter it, you will find a colt that tied there, which no one has ever ridden. That, that, That in context in antiquity just means this is a brand new donkey. This thing has been raised It hasn't been sold yet. No one has ridden it. This would have been like how they would have traded animals in those days. It would have been like, you know, no one's ridden this guy. He's ready to go. It was kind of like a talking point. Like no one's ridden on it. Jesus is saying, I want something that has not been used by the world. I want to get something that hasn't been touched by others. That's what regeneration is. When we get saved, that's why it's called new life. Because he's starting fresh with you. And When you come to him, he is saying, "I'll help you with your past, but I, I'm starting you are a new creation in Christ Jesus today. Today you are in a certain place, but I'll come and find you." Where are you at today? Where are you? It's not just a question here for you're in church, but where are you in your thinking? Where are you in your spirit life? Where are you in your confidence? Because God knows where you're at and he has a desire to keep moving you forward. Psalm chapter 40 says, I waited patiently for the Lord to help me and he turned to me and he heard my cry. He lifted me up out of the pit of despair, out of the mud and the mire and he set my feet on a solid ground and he steadied me as I walked along. Oh, that's good news, friends, that when I was down and out, he saw me. And it doesn't just say that, it says that he turned to me. And it doesn't just say that. He says, he saw me, he turned to me, and then he lifted me. Maybe today you just need to know God sees you. Maybe you've been knowing that and you just need to understand God is willing to turn to you. Maybe you're that third group that you're in the pit today. Friends, we serve a God that says he stoops down to help his creation. Friends, we can be whole knowing that this cult was in a certain place just like you're in a certain place today. Number two, not only was the colt in a certain place, but number two, the the donkey needed to be loosed. The, the, The donkey was no good for the service of Jesus until he was first loosed from what he was tied to. So number two, not just where are you today, but number two, what are you tied to? What things in our life have limited our availability to Jesus because we're hooked up to some dysfunction or we're hooked up to an addiction or we're hooked up to a disease or we're hooked up to something, not realizing that he came to set us free. God doesn't desire for you to go to church. He desires for you to be free. And until we get that in our thinking that church is the place I learn about freedom, then I start living free. It says, verse four, they went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at the doorway. Whew, so close to getting out or getting in. We don't know. But why does the writer tell us he was tied to the doorway? The doorway represents the place in between two other places. <laughs> Let that sit in. He was tied to the doorway. And as they untied it, some people standing there said, what are you doing untying the colt? These strongholds in our life, they keep us tied to sin, okay? And here's the thing about sin. There's always people where there is sin. There's, there's always people. It doesn't mean that they're, you know, going to stay there. It doesn't mean that that's where they're defined by. But if you were going to a bar and then suddenly you realize I shouldn't go there every day, I shouldn't be doing this every night, I'm taking time away from my family, like I, I need to repent, I need to go see my wife, and then you start, there's always going to be someone at that bar saying, what are you doing? Where are you going? When I got off drugs, my friends didn't know what to do. They didn't want me to get off drugs because they wouldn't have anyone to hang with. But freedom isn't just from saying a prayer to Jesus. Freedom is trusting him with your relationships every day. The donkey had to be loosed. Freedom is the goal. You belong to Jesus now, friend. Let the people's talk Let them say whatever they want about your church. Let them say whatever they want about your faith. You're the one that's untied now. You're the one that's loosed. You're the one that's walking in freedom. You're the one that's walking with a better awareness. Okay, let the haters talk. You get free. First Peter chapter two says it like this. Live as people who are free. Watch this. Not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. So grace is not a license to do whatever we want. You know, I got compliment about our church this week. Someone had sent me a message and uh, they were trying to tell other people not to come to our church. And, and they were saying that we, we preach too strong on repentance. And I was like, what, that's crazy. And then, you know, I was talking to somebody another time. This was like, a, this person was telling me something else someone said. And they said, yeah, you know, everyone is saying that you guys are like too welcoming of sin. And like, you welcome sinners too much. And I'm like, what do you mean? They were like, well, you just let anyone come to your church. And if they want to come, they can come. And I'm like, yeah. And then I contrasted it. And I was like, wait, so one person is saying we welcome sinners too much. And then the other person is saying we talk about sin too much. I was like, this seems like a good problem. Put that back up. First Peter two, because the Bible is clear. Freedom makes you feel good, right? I feel good when I'm free, but don't use your freedom to cover up your own sin. We've been freed from the penalty of our sin when we got saved. The the theological term for that is called justification. Justification, okay? Easiest way to remember is just as if I've never sinned. Justification, I've been justified. That means the penalty of our sin is, is taken care of. But sin still has power. And until we start becoming more like Jesus and we get free, sin will continue to try to have power over us. It'll say stuff like this, you need this to survive. You're dependent on this now. Or it'll say stuff like, who else are they going to go to if you leave? And so although the penalty is taken care of by the cross of Jesus, this is like Bible college stuff, y'all, justification at the cross of Jesus, sanctification is when I actually deal with the power of sin in my life. So so I don't go to bed anymore watching reality shows or Netflix or just watching some scary movie. You know, I go to bed like reading a book. Like I go to bed doing something that's gonna calm me down before I go into that place. You know, before I lay my head down and, and my brain now is subject to whatever I'm gonna dream about. You best believe I want some good thoughts going in there. Yeah. Are you following me? Yeah. So live as people who are free, not using your freedom for a cover-up. I gotta hurry up here. Let's go to Revelation chapter two. Starting in verse 19, as I close, it says this, I know your deeds, your love and your faith and your service and your perseverance. And I know that you are doing more now than you used to do. This is a letter written by Jesus to the church of Thyratia, okay? And and this is an end times church. This is a picture of what a church will look like in the end times. There's seven churches that are addressed in the book of Revelation. This is one of the ones where it seems pretty positive at first, right? Like Jesus is like, I know your deeds. I know your love and your faith. I know that you're doing good. You go to church. Your grandparents were Christians. You've been keeping this going through your family line. Like, I think that's great. And he says, and you're doing more now than you did first. But look what he says. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. Okay. I don't have time to break everything down about Jezebel, but, but there is such a thing as a spirit being on someone's life and and not controlling them and causing them to do things, but people make decisions and they do things that's not new to God. Like some people come into churches and they try to divide it from the inside out. And when you look at the story of Jezebel, that's exactly what she did. Okay, Uh, there's some churches that will allow like sexual immorality as a side, like we're not gonna talk about it, that's bad. That's exactly what Jezebel would do. And so Jezebel's not here, but when people do certain things because of sin, because of the world we're in, we're reminded of, oh wow, that's like Jezebel. Okay, so the Jezebel spirit, you know, sometimes we get all like warrior-like about this, like you have a Jezebel spirit, ah, you know. And it's like, no, no, we, we need to be upfront, we need to preach from the word, we need, to, we need to confront people, but it's not like something spooky you may have Jezebel tendencies without even knowing it. I I can have Jezebel tendencies. Like we have to catch it before it happens. So Jezebel works from the inside out. Okay. There's another spirit. This is the Absalom spirit. And Absalom was one of David's sons, King David. And Absalom left his dad's kingdom and tried to build his own kingdom. And he would go to David's kingdom, get everyone to leave that one to come to his. So Jezebel tears things up from the inside out. Absalom tears things up from the outside in. Both need to be dealt with in our day. So he says, there's this woman Jezebel, let's go back. I have this against you. You tolerate that woman. And she calls herself a prophet. But what she is doing is teaching and misleading my servants into sexual immorality and eating a food that is sacrificed to idols. Jesus' words for us, verse 21, I have given her time to repent, but she is unwilling. So we're tolerating something. Jesus says that we we need to do is, is repent of that. If you're loose today, don't let any other voice but the voice of God tell you which way to go. If if you're free today, if you're now like living in freedom and you're walking out your salvation, make sure the right voices are the ones you're still listening to. Because the cult was in a certain place, but it needed to be loose. Number three, then the cult was brought to Jesus. Once this cult got free, he was brought to Jesus. Maybe someone brought you to church today. Maybe someone led you into the house of God, not because you couldn't do it on your own, but because sometimes we put too much pressure on ourselves and we need someone to give us that nudge. Verse seven says, when they brought the donkey to Jesus, they threw their cloaks over it. Watch this. And he sat on it. That seat that was tied up to that post, that seat that was on the doorway of another opportunity, was actually reserved for Jesus. I wanna encourage you this morning that if you've been set free, there is an assignment now for your life. And it's not just to be brought to Jesus, but lastly, number four, the colt carries Jesus into the town. So he was tied up, Brought to Jesus, and then the thing that happens in the story is they they sit Jesus on top of this donkey and start riding into Jerusalem. And as they're riding in, the Bible says that people start recognizing that's Jesus, that's 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 Jesus of Nazareth, that's the guy that that the one we've been waiting for. And so what they do is they they kind of like looked around and they saw these palm branches. Palm Sunday, they would grab the palm branches and what they do is they would lay them down as he came, okay? When a king would come into a town with his chariot and all his officers, it was common that everyone would come out to the road and everyone recognized, oh, the king is coming. Normally they would bow. Sometimes they would take their their cloaks off, lay it down before him. It was like a sign of honor. It was, here comes the king. We must honor him. But Jesus didn't come like any other king. He didn't come just riding on a horse with a sword, ready to, you know, overthrow the Roman government. He didn't come to fight. He didn't come to stir things up. He came to lay his life down. Verse 15 says this, and then it came to Jerusalem. Once he gets into the town, it says he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold and bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling pigeons and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So they were expecting a king on a horse. He comes as a rabbi on a donkey. They were expecting him to go to Pilate's house and overthrow the government. He goes to the temple and purifies it. Are you hearing this? He did not come to you know, overthrow the tyrant that was in charge. He went to the house of God and said, can I make sure y'all are on the same page? Yeah. Huh. Don't spend too much time on pickets and protesting lines until you've first been in the house of God. Don't spend too much time fighting for a cause. If you're called to it, please go do it. We'll support you, you know, if it's biblical, my God. But like, you know, before you go out there, make sure you're in here. Make sure you go to the right place first. Are you hearing what I'm saying this morning? The life that you're trying to live is reserved for him. And whether it's just smiling at a grocery store or praying for a family member at a table, you've got to be ready for when he calls to you. The seed of your life is reserved, my friends. Zechariah chapter nine, I'll close here. This is a couple hundred years before Jesus. The prophet was writing, the prophet Zechariah is writing about a coming savior. And he says this, he says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Watch this. Your king is coming to you. You're not coming to your king. He's coming to you. And watch this. He's righteous and he has salvation. He's humble, mounted on a donkey, the colt, the foal of a donkey. That's the good news of Jesus. Not that he came like we expected, but like he came like we needed We didn't need another quick fix. We didn't need, you know, to fight it ourselves. We needed somebody that was going to show us how to be humble and follow him.